0: Good morning. I'm loud, aren't I? Thank you for that last song, and even for all of the service that's gone on so far. It's such a blessing, isn't it, to celebrate Easter. And that last one brought back memories. The first time I heard it was at Camp Gilead when one of the girls' cabins sang that as a special number. That was the first time I heard it. And it has become one of my favorites among the uh, recent uh, music of of the church. Nobody is more surprised than I am to see me standing up here right now. Um, I've I feel it's a tremendous honor to be asked to preach of all Sundays on Easter Sunday. And uh, I just thank those who um, planned it this way. And I thank the Lord most of all for the wonderful, wonderful truth of his resurrection. Whenever this time of year comes around, I think of a little story that I heard a few years ago, and uh, probably a true story given the kind of culture that we live in today. The story was of a little class of children, maybe Sunday school or something else. And they were asked the question, what does Easter mean? And everything was quiet for a while. Nobody knew. But one little girl thought she knew the answer. She had somehow heard that there was a connection with Jesus. So she said maybe it was when the Easter bunny brought her eggs to give to Jesus. Now what a beautiful sentimental story that is but how very wrong it is. And what we want to do is look at the true story. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, the first four chapters of this book, or first four verses, I'm sorry. Romans 1, 1 to 4. If you will turn there. And let's stand together in honor of God's sacred word. Romans 1, 1 to 4. Paul writes this: Paul, a slave of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness. I want to just reread that last verse, because that is where our focus will be this morning who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you once again for the wonderful, wonderful day that we celebrate. The hope that we have in you the salvation which we enjoy, which is made sure to us by that great event that happened so many years ago. And Father, as we consider it, I pray that you will take the simple words that I speak and just use them to show us again the wonder of what you have done for us And we just commit this coming time to you now and pray that you will truly write your word into our hearts, not just what I speak, but your word itself, that we will again be encouraged and strengthened and blessed by the wonderful truth that you have for us here. And we ask all of this in the name of the one who rose again from the dead for our who died for our sins and rose again for our salvation. Amen. You may be seated. Most of us here have very little idea. Of the hold that religion has in the lives of many, many people on earth, but the few of us that have been overseas recognize that in with many people in this world, religion has a tremendous hold. It affects even the food that they eat, it affects their They're living. It affects everything in their lives. I think in America, generally speaking, we have more the idea that our life is like a house and religion is just like one little room in the house. And we keep it separate from everything else. But with other people, and I understand there are many that are just nominal, they don't really live like this, but those who really follow those religions. And one big example we have of that right now, and and Brother Andrew Clever has experienced this with uh, Muslim people today, it marks the, approximately the middle of their month of Ramadan, and all through this month they are worshiping, they're, they're, they're fasting, their religion has a very powerful hold on them right now. And um, so Andrew has experienced that with Muslim people. I've experienced that with Hindu people, the, the fact that religion just controls everything that they are and everything that they do. And um, some of the rest of us, I don't know, maybe have experienced that too, to a little extent. But most of us, as I say, have not really seen this firsthand. The New Testament tells us about one man who was very much that way. He was very, very strong in his religious faith. And his faith was what we now call Judaism, the Jewish religion. He was very strong in that. In his own words, he spoke this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. And that was certainly true of his life. Well, at the same time, there was another man who came along. And this man made great claims for himself. He did amazing things, which represented what God had led him to do. He even called himself God in many many occasions. And uh, yet he had a human nature. He did some amazing things, though, healing and feeding. And the man we're talking about said, no, it can't be. There were some people, actually many people, who were convinced by this man. They believed in him. But the man we're talking about, no, not him. He can't be. And that other man ended up crucified. That kind of put the nail in the coffin. He can't be. Good people are not crucified. And he came to believe that he should do everything he could against this other man. And soon a movement was started, and there were more and more people increasingly following that other man, that crucified man. There were rumors that he had risen from the dead. And this man said, no, it cannot happen. And as we heard last Sunday, Stephen was martyred, and this man said, I've got to stop this business. I've got to put an end to it. It cannot be true. And he threw all his energy and all of his efforts to putting an end to this. He pursued believers, even in their own homes, they were not safe. He would arrest them. He would take them out. He would punish them. A number probably were killed. We don't know for sure. But he, he puts all he has into that. And in fact, some of them had escaped 150 miles away to the city of Damascus. And he said, I don't care how far they are. Remember, 150 miles was a long, long way in those days. So he said, I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to get rid of them. And you know the rest of the story, don't you? Suddenly, he's blinded by a bright light. He hears a voice calling him by name and saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? I believe that Saul had heard that voice before. He recognized possibly the sound of that voice, just like we recognize people, even if we can't see them, by what they sound like. But he wanted to make sure, you know, they sounded like the other man, so he says, who are you? And the voice replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And immediately Saul's whole life was changed radically. And we know that story. And he recognized that Jesus is alive. The resurrection proved it. You see, he wasn't convinced by the miracles. He wasn't convinced by the claims that Jesus made. He said, well, anybody can make claims. And these regular people are just gullible, you know. Human, human beings are very often gullible. They'll follow everything. They'll believe in such things as the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny or whatever, But when he realized that Jesus was alive, it changed his whole life. And years later, after many experiences and many adventures, he wrote a book that has become a masterpiece of explaining the faith. And we read the first four verses of that book already this morning. In a sense, the book of Romans could almost be called his autobiography, in a way, because some of it is very personal. He sees himself first as a human being under the condemnation of God because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He sees himself as a Jewish person who was given a lot of privileges, a lot of benefits because of being God's chosen people, and yet even they are condemned. And then he sees himself as a Christ follower, and we can go on through the book and see the number of personal things that he had experienced himself that he relates in this book. So I'd like you to join with me as we look at, first of all, the convincing proof, and then the demonstrated almighty power, the wonderful purpose, and then the result, the authentic peace. First of all, the convincing proof. It says that he was declared to be the Son of God. Now I'm gonna get just a little bit technical here, but that word declared is a very interesting word. It is actually the word from which we get the word horizon. The horizon is a boundary marker. We look out and we see the horizon. We know what that means. We know there's other things beyond the horizon that we can't see. But what we look at is what is bounded by that. So what it is talking about is that the the declaration here declared to be the Son of God. It means that he is he is horizoned as it were. He's marked out to be the Son of God. Now. That was very difficult to understand for many people, because this man, Jesus Christ, we call him, lived as a regular human being. He was born as a baby is born. We celebrate that at Christmas. He grew up. He was a boy, a teenager, adolescent, young adult. He went through all the stages of growth. He ate and drank like other people do. He lived in a family. He, he uh, was tired sometimes. He slept. Hosea, uh, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53, that he didn't, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. And yet he made some amazing claims. He claimed to be able to forgive sins in a way that only God can forgive sins. He claimed to come down from heaven. He called God his father in a very close personal sense. He healed people. He had power over nature. He fed thousands of people. He even gave life to dead ones. He cast out demons and so on. The religious elite of his day began feeling uncomfortable. They asked him for signs. They wanted proofs that he was real, that he was who he said he was. They wanted more evidence They refused all the evidence they already had. Those miracles, those things that Jesus said. And they wanted more evidence. They wanted more signs. That wasn't enough. And so it was very hard to convince people that he was truly who he said he was. I've often thought... From my experience working with Hindu people, it would have been much, much easier if God had sent Jesus in that culture because they would have said, oh yes, he's God. We'll accept him as God. We'll just put him up on our God shelf with the other gods. And I have literally been in the Hindu home and literally seen a God shelf where a little image or statue of Jesus was put there, and I was told, yes, see, we worship him too. But instead of that, God sent Jesus to the most difficult of all people to convince that he was real. And obviously, God had a wonderful reason for doing that, because it made it absolutely sure As Romans 1.4 says, he was the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God. So instead of, well, besides his humanity, there is his deity. Some people accepted that, even during his lifetime. But you know, they're simple people, They live in a primitive time, they're gullible, people will accept anything, and in our present day, 2,000 years later, we're a lot more sophisticated. Modern technology has produced many, many wonders. We have put people on the moon, we've even sent a, a vehicle to Mars, we have our cars, our planes. We have these little gadgets that we have that we carry around with us all the time. It's wonderful, but you know one thing that mankind has never, ever been able to do? That is raise a dead body to life. Oh yes, we can have resuscitations, and there are cases in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha raised people to life, but this is a different thing. This is a resurrection to a life that will never end, a life that is eternal. Those were just resurrections, and even the ones that Jesus raised were just resurrections of, for a temporary time, for Uh, they were going to die again. But the real resurrection is a life eternal. Mankind, with all of his intelligence, all of the wonders that we've been able to create, has never and will never be able to duplicate that. Only God can do it. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate today, is the positive, convincing proof that he is God. Now, some people today treat it as legend, you know. It didn't really happen. And uh, back in 1930 or so, There was a man, Frank Morrison, who decided, I'm going to put an end to this legend. I'm going to show people that the resurrection didn't really happen. So he did a lot of investigation, a lot of searching in the past records, not only the Bible, but outside the Bible. And and he was a very, very clever man. I thought he was a lawyer, but I read recently, looked him up and, and found that he possibly wasn't really a lawyer, but he he had a very investigative mind, and he decided he would write a book to deny the resurrection. He did a lot of research, and the research he did led him to the conclusion that the resurrection did really happen. All the evidence shows positively. The book is called Who Moved the Stone? And I love the title of the first chapter. The first chapter's title is The Book That Refused to be Written. And that's really what it was. More recently... Josh McDowell, which many of you have heard about, faced the same thing. He said, I'm going to go out and prove that the resurrection didn't really happen. So he did his own investigation and and searched and uh, tried to find reasons to deny it, and he came to the same conclusion. Evidence that demands a verdict. And some of you probably read that book, so it is real. I like a, a quotation from a book that was a great favorite of mine many years ago. The book is called The Suffering Savior by Fred Frederick Kramacher. He's a German writer. This has been translated into English and he writes all about the suffering of Christ, and he ends the book right up just before the resurrection, and he's talking about all the preparations they made to prevent the resurrection. The guard at the tomb, the stone rolled against the door, the seal on the stone, and he says, what do they mean? by their extensive preparations. They are fighting for the cause of death against life and would gladly establish the throne of death and keep down the throne of of life. Let them do their utmost, and all overruling God controls their designs and permits them to assist death by still more strongly forging its fetters in order that the bursting of them may appear so much the more glorious. And thus they are allowed to deprive life of all scope and to wall up every outlet so that when it bursts through every barrier, it may the more evidently prove itself to be divine. I love those words. And it reminds us of the fact of the truth, the convincing proof of Christ and his resurrection. The resurrection is the final, ultimate proof that that, uh, Christ was God. Now we want to go on and look at almighty power. He says that he's that's the, the the resurrection was the um, the it, it was the mighty the powerful Son of God the description of his resurrection. So we look first of all. At the weakness, Second Corinthians 13:4 says he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. But think about a person who is crucified. None is so weak as that. It's like being quadriplegic. You can't move anything. You're totally, totally helpless, completely. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus makes a wonderful, amazing statement. Now, we often think of that statement, but we separate it from its context. When you read it in context, you realize what a tremendous statement it really is. This is what he says. I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. Now, we're going to come back to that subject of peace later on. But he goes on to say, you will have suffering in the world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. What is he talking about? Within hours of saying this, he's gonna be nailed up to a cross, totally, totally helpless. And yet he says, I have overcome the world. It seems so totally opposite to reality. And isn't that often God's method? Out of utter weakness, he shows his powerful strength. We think of people in the Bible we think of uh, Israel being in slavery, and God redeems them from slavery. I mean, nobody is so helpless as slaves, and yet he redeems them powerfully. We know that familiar story. In fact, we just celebrated Passover, which is a remembrance of that, of his deliverance from slavery. You think of of a number of women in the Bible that are barren. They can't bear children. And God miraculously provides a child, Sarah in the Old Testament, Hannah, and and others um, that had that experience. You think of Gideon with his 300 men against an army of 135,000 men. And so on and so on. We could give many examples, but that's the way God works. Out of weakness, He shows His omnipotence, His mighty power. And uh, in Hebrews, it talks about through His death, He destroys Him who has the power of death, um, and delivers those who, through slavery, uh, who were in slavery by their fear of death. I have seen this personally on two different occasions. First of all, growing up in the Congo. And when a person dies, the wailing and wailing goes on. It's totally hopeless and helpless. And that's just their culture, the way they live. They're totally afraid of death. And when Jesus came, he destroyed that hopelessness, that helplessness. In the case, the the second case I remember was with Hindu people in the country of Kenya later when I worked there. And just to hear when someone has died, the wailing, the women mostly do that, the men will sit in a room totally silent, they have nothing to say, they have no answer for this, no helpful word, but the women just wail and wail and Christ came to give us salvation from that we read of a number of places and I won't go into uh, much more of these but in Ephesians chapter 2 he talks about being dead in our trespasses but God raised us up and and made us sit in heavenly places the big, one big example in the old testament is Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. And God asked Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? He says, well, Lord, you know. And he brings life into those dead bones. So we have many examples of omnipotence, of power. The resurrection demonstrates the almighty power of God. Acts eight, power to witness. Romans 1.16, just a few verses on from what we read. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. And in Ephesians 1, he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power, which he showed to to men, uh, which he showed by, by his salvation. Then we move on. There's a wonderful purpose in the resurrection. I want to spend just a few minutes here. Um, in fact, even after I had already written these notes and was going over them again, something that popped into my mind. It's like, like you're interviewing somebody for a job. And I'm thinking particularly of our church's search for a new pastor. That's a very, very small picture of what we're having here. First of all, you want to know the credentials of that person. What is his experience? What is his... his, uh, um, his, uh, What he has done, what he's accomplished, his training, and all that sort of thing. The, The credentials of Christ or he is the son of God. You cannot get a higher credential than that. Well, then you want to know what can he do? Does he have the ability to perform what he's doing? We've just looked at the omnipotent power that is there. Yes, he has accomplished. Well, now the third thing, obviously, is the job itself. What is the job that he is to do. The, the uh, book of the Bible emphasizes or calls it the gospel, and I want us to think of that for just a few moments. All of us would agree that our life here on earth is marked with a lot of trouble, a lot of sadness. It's not what it should be. Life, for one thing, is so brief. The Bible says it's like a mist, like a vapor. And believe me, when you've reached my age, some of you maybe have, most of you have not, you realize that that's so true of our life. Where did all that time go? It's so brief, it doesn't seem fair. There are many things that we've enjoyed doing now are just memories, maybe places where we've lived, places where we have visited, and all these things just pass away in, in our experience. We don't, we don't have those anymore. There are unsatisfied longings, there are unfulfilled plans. Great works are unfinished, interrupted often by death riches are wasted not kept to be enjoyed. Fame comes to some people that don't deserve it and then there are other people that deserve credit and deserve fame but they don't get it. And then Christians are persecuted. No reward for them, no punishment for their enemies. I read recently that in the country of Myanmar, also called Burma, on Christmas Eve, 35 Christians were killed as they were celebrating the birth of Christ. Why is not there punishment for that? They got away with it. The Christians suffered needlessly death. In Nigeria, I've heard that the, the Boko Haram terrorists have killed 10,000 people in the last few years. Crime is unpunished in this country. And you know the story. You often read this. Somebody goes on a shooting spree and kills a few people, and then they turn the gun on themselves. And I'm sure their thinking is, well, the law will never catch up to me now. I won't be punished for this. Where is justice in our world? life becomes so utterly meaningless. Life becomes really a hopeless end. And all this is is suggested in the words of our call to worship this morning. I, I, I chose those words particularly because often we recognize the value of what we have when we realize what we don't have, when we realize what the absence of it would be. And life becomes so meaningless. It's so unfair. It's so unjust. Where is justice? Many say, if there is a God, where is he? What kind of a God are you talking about? Maybe going back to that Easter bunny story is the right answer after all. No, 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 no! The resurrection changes all of that radically. Instead of a hopeless end, the resurrection gives us an endless hope. Yes, those Christians will be rewarded, richly rewarded in the life to come. Yes, there is justice in the world. Those who have done wrong will be duly punished as they so deserve to be, and so on and so on. We could go on. So resurrection gives us a wonderful purpose in life. And then, finally, there is authentic peace. Now when I use that word, authentic, I'm suggesting there is a false peace, a peace that is only temporary, not lasting, A a peace that is only partial, not complete, a peace that is fragile, not durable. It can be upset very easily. It's a peace that depends on circumstances, But that's not true peace. True peace is much different. It's the the Hebrew word shalom which we're uh, familiar with. The shalom means not just an absence of conflict, it actually means a wholeness, a completeness. It's something which is permanent, it's complete, it's unshakable. Other descriptions of it, it's harmony, reconciliation, completion of a transaction, payment of a debt, fellowship, calm, tranquility, assurance. Nathan Stone, who wrote a book called The Names of God, said it's the deepest desire and need of the human heart. The Bible says a lot about peace. And true peace is peace for our past. That's forgiveness of our sins. There's no condemnation now to them that are in Christ Jesus. It's a peace for the present, for victory over all circumstances. Circumstances don't even affect the peace. It's a peace for our future, a wonderful hope. And in closing, I want to just read some verses about peace. The Bible has many, many verses, and I've chosen these five, and I'm gonna read them with very little comment, and then we're through. But this is a result of the resurrection of Christ. First of all, John 14, 27. Jesus said, peace I give you. It's his peace. It's not found in anywhere else. And then to make sure, he says, not as the world gives, I give it to you. So it's a different kind of peace. Romans 5.1 says, we have peace now that we've been justified or put right with God, we have peace with God. What a wonderful expression. We have peace with God. That's Romans 5.1, the ultimate kind of peace. In Ephesians 2.17, he says, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2.17, when Christ comes, he proclaimed the good news. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Beautiful verse, beautiful expression. Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses every thought. In another translation, uh, which passes all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then finally, Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace the mind that is dependent on you for distrusting in you. I'd suggest that during this Easter day that you look back over these verses. The references are printed in your bulletin. And just think about this as the result of resurrection, the wonderful, wonderful peace that God offers to us. A peace that the world cannot give and cannot take away. A peace that passes understanding. Peace with God. Peace that goes above our circumstances. And this is because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death for us. Shall we pray? Father God, we do rejoice in all that you've done for us. Not only forgiving our sins, which in itself is a wonderful thing, but you've also given us the wonderful gift of peace. This wonderful sense of a wholeness, a completeness, a lack of any anxiety that comes only from you. And Father, I pray that we will live the rest of our days and the coming days in the sense of that peace, how we long for that, how the world longs for that. And I pray, Father, that you will truly keep our mind focused on you, which these verses tell us we need to do. And then you will give us your perfect peace. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.